I'm Craig James, your host, and this is Big Audacious Idea. The Big Audacious Idea we're discussing today is the very idea of capitalism. Capitalism is a system that needs reinvention. We have the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Peter Georgescu to Big Audacious Idea. Peter is Chairman Emeritus of Young and Rubicam. He's a successful businessman who's made his mark in the world of advertising. He's also the product of a dramatic childhood, having experienced the fall of the Iron Curtain in Romania. Most recently, his book, Capitalists Arise, serves as a call to action. It's a thought-provoking investigation into the current state, the future of capitalism. It's chock full of data and facts, and it makes one think indeed. When we look at prosperity or success in our economy or in business, or when we think of capitalism, our assumptions can be dangerous. And we make value judgments based on who's winning and losing and who's have and have not. So we have to look carefully at our assumptions. This subject hits a lot of buttons and requires some thinking. Peter's insights are molded by his personal experience with authoritarian communism and also his iconic role in the mid-20th century. Think of it, New York ad man. Our perception of economic structure is ultimately a product of our own personal socioeconomic experience. Now, whether we share this opinion or someone else's or this perspective or another isn't necessarily the point. The point is that we have the conversation and that we recognize different points of views. And that indeed is what we'll do today with Peter Georgescu. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Craig. Uh, good morning. And, and it's wonderful to be together with you. <laughs> it is our time to be audacious. <laughs> Indeed, and well said, sir. And to start things off, you have such an interesting story, and I know the whole show could be about your story, but if if possible, if you could give us a minute or two and tell us a bit about you and that story. Well, uh, indeed, you know, anybody who was born during the war years, as I was, and lived them through the war years, has a long story, by definition. Mm. Uh, my story, then, to make it very simple, I was uh, a product of what happened after the Iron Curtain came down in Eastern Europe in 1947 or so, and uh, managed to lose my uh, grandfather, who was arrested by the communists and killed in prison. Uh, my parents, fortunately, were caught in the United States on a business trip. My father had been a manager of the largest oil fields in Europe at the time, in the Ploest oil fields. And they were owned by Standard Oil of New Jersey, Exxon. And so he came for a couple of weeks to New York just as the Iron Curtain came down. So they uh, were in New York and his company and his friends from war days told him that he couldn't return to Romania, much as my mother, who was with him, desperately trying to get to Romania to protect their kids. By kids, I meant myself and my five-year-old brother. But they were told, you're on a list to be arrested and killed and, and if you were to return. And so there was no point to do that. And so they stayed in the States. My brother and I, my grandmother, were arrested after my grandfather was arrested. Eventually, my grandfather was killed in prison. 
We ended up in a work camp for about four or five years, hard labor, six days a week, lots of hardship, hard labor, cleaning sewers, digging holes for electric poles, working on high tension wires. So then they tried to get my father to spy for them. My uh, father went to the FBI, a wonderful congresswoman from Ohio, Frances Payne Bolton, interceded, and with her help and the help of President Eisenhower, my brother and I were traded, as we understand it, for a bunch of Russian spies that we held in the United States. So 8-15, April 13th, 1954, this 15-year-old boy with his brother arrived in the United States, uh, and uh, I didn't speak a word of English. Headmaster of Exeter, wonderful school in New Hampshire, who said they would keep a place for me. I ended up at Exeter. They obviously, I was not qualified, had not been in school for four years, and then only had four months of English when I ended up in late August at Exeter. And the deal was that if I could pass my courses with no consideration for my background by the end of the year, I got to stay. If not, the headmaster said, you'll find the right school for me. Well, I had no clue what the hell he was talking about, <laughs> but I was smart enough to say, yes, sir. And uh, that was that. So I went to Exeter for three years uh, and got a very fine education, good enough to get into Princeton and then Stanford Business School. And the rest of my story is kind of a typical college kid, graduate school who managed to get a very fine preparation for business and the world, and off I went. But the reason I appreciate you asking me the question, because it's an important contextual issue for me, because the hero of this war saga obviously is not me. The real hero of this saga are really the American people. They knew about the story. This story was publicized, the Georgescu saga was publicized in America, both when the, the Russians and the Romanians blackmailed my parents and afterwards. So there were a lot of goodwill. And this woman, Frances Bolton, congresswoman from Ohio, why did she call my dad in New York? And why did the master of Exeter call my dad up and say, I'll keep a place for your son? There was no logical reason, except they could help. And so they reached out and they did. It happens in America. And, you know, throughout my life, I had many guardian angels, as I like to call them, who helped me. And that's true, not just for me, but Craig, I'm sure it is for you and your colleagues and just about any successful person in America got there because lots of people helped them. There's no doubt about it. And, and Peter, thank you so much for continuing to share your story and the meaning of your story. You know, when we talked a bit before today, uh, we spoke to the responsibility we have. You and I are in different generations, and yet there's yet another generation and yet another we owe the future to through sharing our lessons learned from the past. And, and, and that's an important part of our discussion today, Peter. And you know, when we contemplate the big things in society, the big painful things, you know, what you experienced, your family experienced are these expressed, explicit 
confrontations human to human, and it's something what we can do to each other. In other cases, there's sort of an, it feels like it's innocuous. Um, and maybe it's not so overt, but things like inequality in society are, they're sleepers, but they're insidious. And as we contemplate these issues like inequality, we'd love to hear, take a moment to get operational and, and think about some definitions when we use terms like capitalism or socialism or communism. Socialism, which means controlling by government, the means of production and distribution. And by contrast, capitalism is free enterprise, free enterprise, free markets, where the private sector controls the means of production and distribution. Well, free enterprise capitalism is a very powerful idea. And I would say audaciously, the most extraordinary driver of prosperity and growth that humankind ever invented. And, and America is, a, in a way, a petri dish of good versions of capitalism and bad versions of capitalism. And between the years 1945 and the mid-1980s, we saw an extraordinary version of capitalism. You were talking about equality and inequality. And that's an important point because during the, those first 40 years after the war, America's middle class became the largest economic market in the world, in the world. And the growth in terms of economic development of the middle class equaled and in fact exceeded that of the very top part of America. So it was a extraordinary period of time when capitalism succeeded. And he succeeded because, and here is a key word that we have to pay attention to, that is governance. And by governance, I mean, what are the rules of the road of capitalism? And that's critical for us to understand. Because during those years, multiple stakeholders were being optimized, including, of course, you start with the customer and then the workers, and then the shareholders, and then the corporation itself, and then society, and everybody was kind of a winner by and large. We, we had obviously civil rights issues during those periods of time where they were critical and, and difficult and challenging. And in fact, part of the revolutionary steps in the right direction during that period of time also happened during those 40 years. Mm. But by and large, America was socioeconomically close to having seen everybody having an inclusive growth. When you speak to uh, the history in those 40 years, I think on or about 1945 or so to 1985, and uh, there's a lot of data in your book, Capitalists Arise, uh, speaking to that history and then the current state. So what's interesting about our discussion right now at this moment is we're talking about in large part the past, what once was, what shifted and changed, and what's the picture now as compared to then? What changed was the governance. The governance that says, the rules of the road that says all those four or five critical stakeholders would be optimized changed in the early to mid-80s. And it changed, and now the governance or the rules said, instead of having four or five or six stakeholders, we will concentrate and focus on one. And that was the shareholder. And now 
the law of business became clear. The governance became clear. And this was the gospel of Milton Friedman. 50 years ago, Milton Friedman said, the role of business is to create value for shareholders. Now, during this past 40 years, it went beyond that. It said, not only value for shareholders, but maximize short-term shareholder value. That was the governance. That version of capitalism also succeeded. It did what it was asked to do. It made relatively small, but still large minority of Americans, I would say 25% or so, quite rich, very successful. And we happen to be the people who run the government, who run business, who control education, do everything. We are the, the folks who really benefit from all of this. And how fortunate for us, and sort of we feel entitled to say, because we are here, we want to preserve what is and continue this. And so we developed, in essence, two Americas, a very successful America, and a very, very disadvantaged America. And when we have government and leaders talk about the extraordinarily powerful economy in America because of GDP growth and records low unemployment, those are unfortunately totally misleading pieces of data. The economy was only strong for some 25% of America and lousy devastatingly poor for the rest of America, as COVID already demonstrated to us. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's so interesting to hear two things happening here. One is, how do we define success in the the first place or prosperity? I remember by the Council on Competitiveness in D.C. years ago, did a little work with them and uh, to distinguish between success, growth and prosperity. So our language is so important when we say successful. Well, what does that mean? And who? is successful. And if we're not careful, we make casting judgments to say the economy is great, GDP is great, but well, for whom? And so I suppose this leads to a question, if I might indulge as we look forward to the future. You know, I think about some of the great, thoughtful, young talent we have in the world. And we have a subset of citizenry in the United States who's been very successful and that the have-have-not gap is widening. And so it's interesting to think about those that most likely can affect the future are the ones with the power and the money and the control. Uh, Yet one could beg the question, are they in the position of having the will to shift and change and work hard and maybe give up some things 
for our future. What do we do? How do we activate and make this change, especially if those who have the control don't want it to change? Yes. Well, you're putting your finger on it. That's exactly the right issue. The truly audacious notion that we're talking about here is the essence of America's democracy. America's democracy is at stake right now because we are one country. To survive successfully, it has to be inclusive growth and inclusive prosperity. That's democracy. And so let's distinguish one other thing when we're talking about equality and inequality. When we're talking about inequality or the positive part of that equality, what do we mean by that? We certainly don't mean equality of income, equality of wealth, not necessarily that. What we do mean and must mean and what is the essence of democracy is equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity. That's the key of all Americans. And that's why I'm doing my work. My work is driven by my past. And I want not only my four granddaughters, but every child in America should have an equal opportunity to do what I was able to achieve in this country. I'm an immigrant, but I got a good education. Today, most kids in America do not get a good education. They get a very poor education. That's why America, on average, laggers in the bottom half of the developed world. And we have some of the best high schools in the world, but on average, we are towards the bottom half. Not towards, we are in the bottom half. We know, for example, we, the 25 percenters, know that a child must start some form of cognitive development from the age of three. Early education does not exist in the other zip codes. And the segregation of the haves and have much to less, it's by zip code, not by region of the country or cities versus rural, it's by zip code. And, and for example, public school education is mostly funded by real estate taxes. And business has managed to keep flat wages, forced flat wages on employees for 40 years, flat wages, in order to maximize short-term shareholder profits. They went to them. And so this lack of economic inequality led to inequality of opportunity. And that's the heart of the disease that we're talking about and at the end of the day, that's not sustainable in a democracy. It's not, and we're seeing that today. And much of the racial divide that we're seeing is also driven by inequality. All it was was exploitation by any other name. And from hundreds of years back, 400 years back to today, there was some form of explicit or implicit exploitation. And the haves, well, we wanted to keep it that way, and we still do. And that's just not, that's not sustainable anymore. Not in today's world, not with the level of communication that we have, not with the diversity of the population that we have, not with the reality that we are all one family. Also, the other reality, within 10 or 15 years, the vast majority 
of the folks are not going to be the wealthy, the rich, the whites. That's just the reality of life. So America is a stir-fried society, democratically based. And so business was not put on earth to make shareholders rich. With a form of saying, this is how society will be better served by having people work together more efficiently, more effectively, producing more. And this is why capitalism, which is free enterprise and democratic at its core, if we treat it right, if we ask capitalism to produce inclusive growth, it will produce inclusive growth. And again, back to multi-stakeholder where community, society, employee, uh, shareholder, the company itself, all of the above, not any of the above. And one of the things that I'm hearing is at least the beginnings of solution uh, still, even if some companies get it right, so to speak, it's a heck of a big ship to turn. You know, a friend of mine once told me about the trim tab. I didn't know what a trim tab was or is, but evidently the trim tab is a highly leveraged small little device that actually applies pressure to a rudder. So so that the rudder can apply pressure to the ship. And without that highly leveraged system, things that are highly catalytic, you can't possibly even turn the rudder, let alone turn the ship. And I wonder what are the trim tab things, Peter, do you think in your opinion, in terms of what tangibly can we do to activate change? Is it, what are the tangible things that we can do, which leads to a close to our discussion, and that is a challenge you would have for our listeners and for me. What are the th most actable trim tab-like things we can do, Peter? Well, Craig, I, I applaud you on your quest, and, and I love your analogy, which I will not be able to remember all the, all the very vertical pressure points that lead to, with the rudder to change. But I get the metaphor very well, <laughs> and, and fits exactly to what needs to happen right now. So let's lay it out a little bit. What needs to happen, in essence, is that we need CEO leadership. That's critical. At this point in time, I would like for business to have the wisdom and the vision and the understanding that if we don't fix ourselves, only bad things are going to happen to society, and then we're all in trouble. And so business needs to fix itself. And that requires some leadership from the top. Right now, there's a beginning of green shoots and we have to be optimistic. A year ago, this month, the Business Roundtable came up with a statement that society must be a factor in the mission of business. So the Business Roundtable principles set a lot of companies, 170 companies signed this document, right? Out of 182 members of the Business Roundtable. Another not-for-profit, Just Capital, they measure justness in business as inspired by the consumer, the American consumers. And what the American consumer says, it's exactly what the Business Roundtable said and what I would call today stakeholder capitalism. The nomenclature is important because it describes the point that there needs to be, in this case, six stakeholders. The, again, the customer, the employees, the shareholders, the corporation itself, the environment important in today's world and society, right? All those 
six stakeholders sit around the table, metaphorically, and optimize the interests of all of them, right, at the table. And that's the job of the CEO. That's the job of the board of directors. That's the job of the financial community and, and importantly, the government as well. So what is needed right now, one of the critical elements in your metaphor of the pressure point, we need to define right now, somewhere soon, what is the operating model for stakeholder capitalism? Not just the idea, but more specifically than that. Let me give you an example. The most important thing I, I say is to reimagine the relationship between the corporation and the employees. For 40 years, the employees were a cost to be squeezed. And corporations, by and large, squeezed for 40 years through today, flat wages. Fact, flat wages at or just slightly below inflation for 40 years, which created all these dysfunctional socioeconomic inequality, right? The major driver of inequality was business. So when you say, okay, so now we have to be fair, we have to pay people more. What do we mean by that? How you do that? So let me be specific now. Stakeholder capitalism. There's a new relationship between employees and the corporation. And that relationship is this. The employees, they have to drive productivity increases and innovation. Corporations then must pay people out of the incremental value of what they produce. So now, all of a sudden, the people are not just a transaction point in doing a task. In fact, the employees become the value creators. You remember some years back, Mitt Romney was, was just chastised by saying that we, the shareholders, we, the leaders, business leaders, we are the value creators. It's just not true. How valuable is capital right now? <laughs> <laughs> right. Kind of money, see what you get back. Right. And right. so value creators now are the employees. The CEO doesn't drive innovation and productivity. They do other things, important things, but not that. So the true value creators are your workers. So now you have something else. You have to motivate people. You've got to treat them with respect and dignity. The workers and the corporation is the starting point. Between the corporation and every single stakeholder, there has to be a mission, a set of principles to guide them. And then the government can play a role too. The government can support and enhance business doing this, and also perhaps even incent them. So when business and government can work together on projects, on technology, on education, on training, retraining, all kinds of wonderful things can begin to happen. Stakeholder capitalism and an enlightened government working together to build infrastructure and to begin to allow the entrepreneurial spirit of America to grow. That's what's needed. And the true fact is that for us to really be able to be a successful democracy, we need to really work hard to become better people, more caring, more fair, more just. And in terms of what can anybody do is to do that. For us to touch other people, do it, and become a better society, weeks, weeks away, we're going to have another election. And I'm saying this again is not an issue of partisanship. It's an issue of saying, send the right people to Washington 
who you think can do this, who are the good people, people with value, people who care about other people so we can have one united America working together to enhance the ability of equal opportunity and fairness for anybody. It's so important, I think, and it's so powerful to hear, Peter, um, not to oversimplify, but so often the, the most complex problems can be eloquently addressed at least, maybe hard to implement, but if we hold true to principles of equity, being fair, listening to and appreciating others, acting as a leader in a holistic sense, looking for the welfare of all. These things sound high and mighty, but I'm hearing that if we embrace these principles and we enact them, and if leadership, the CEO or the C-suite, embraces the collective will for us all to make things better for all, then maybe capitalism and business is in a better place in the future. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Big Audacious Idea. It's truly been an honor, and thank you for your continued work and passion for change. I'm Craig James, your host, and this is Big Audacious Idea. So what we learned today is that there was a period for capitalism that was pretty good, decades of progress and prosperity. Peter today helps us think about maybe that is changing and we should talk about it. And the gravity of such a change is essential to recognize. There's a ripple effect, you know, so it's not just about business is good or business is bad. We made money or we didn't. But if we don't have success and prosperity in a broad sense, then maybe education is affected. And if education isn't sound, maybe the family unit suffers. If the family unit suffers, maybe our value system and sense of hope shifts in the wrong direction. And even when things were, well, good, even when we look at periods of quote unquote prosperity, well, good for what people? Is it always a broad sense of goodness or is it a pocket or is it a perception? This causes us always to, again, be careful with our judgments and to examine our lens when we look at quote unquote, the good times or the bad times. Peter helps us see that this is maybe what's happening, and it's sobering indeed. He asserts that, well, we're two Americas, and we have to address this for the future. So we have to use our hearts, our minds, and our bodies in different ways in the corporate setting, in business, and when we think of capitalism. And further, there's a underpinning to that underpinning, and that's the idea of understanding the role of humanity beyond the market economy, that we need to be kind, thoughtful, caring. We need to essentially reimagine the entire relationship between employer and employee. And the time to do that is now. I'm Craig James, your host, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. Let us know what you think about our chat with Peter today by tweeting me at cjamescatstrat. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz. Production director, Bridget Coyne. 
and to my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. Thanks for listening. Until next week, don't just think audacious, be audacious. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.